Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode at amazic.com, where we talk to leaders and influencers from around the cloud native space. I'm Twain Taylor, editor at Amazic. And we have with us today, Keith Mokris, who is the VP of product marketing at Oculus Security. Keith, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you so much, Twain. I'm really excited to be here. So we just to recap, we spoke to Andrew Bartlem recently, who is also from the Orca team. And uh, he spoke to us about nine focus areas of Orca. And uh, we found out that recently Orca has added a 10th focus area. And so that's actually the focus of this podcast. And so that's what we want to talk to Keith about. And uh, the, the 10th focus area happens to be shift left security. So, um, you know, before we get into shift left, I was wondering, you know, Keith, if you could just, uh, for those who are tuning in without watching, who haven't watched the first episode, if you could sort of give us the elevator pitch of Orca and especially touch upon uh, the idea of site scanning, which is uh, the secret sauce of Orca solution. Uh, if you could take it from there and move to shift left, that would be great. Definitely. So Twain, thank you so much. And I'm really excited to kind of start with a recap here. But ultimately, Orca is an agentless cloud security platform that focuses on addressing all of the different risks that you have in the cloud across your public cloud infrastructure and applications, whether it's AWS, Google Cloud, or Microsoft Azure. And so whether you're looking for vulnerabilities, trying to achieve compliance, or looking at many other risk scenarios, we want to be that all-encompassing solution that doesn't rely on agents in order to secure your cloud environments. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about Orca is we you know, really exist and continue to grow because of the rise in cloud adoption and all of the different cloud native services and application architectures that teams are gravitating toward today. And I mentioned that because that's really going to plug into our main topic today around shift left security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great as an intro. And, you know, coming to shift left security. So it's not a, a totally brand new idea, I'd say, because, you know, since the start of DevOps, the idea has kind of been floating around, but it was used differently. I think it was more to do with, uh, QA testing and how they should be more part of the developer workflow, uh, sometimes a bit about ops. Uh, but, you know, something has changed recently. It's got a different uh, perspective to it when we say shift left, especially uh, when we talk about security. Could you shed some light on, you know, just the term and, you know, what it means today and how it's different from what it used to mean? Yeah, and I think, you know, ultimately the evolution of shift left security is important because, it really mimics the fact that these cloud environments, the way we build and deploy and all of our different toolkits continue to change. And so that's why I think Mm -hmm. there's been this rise around shift left security as a term. Mm -hmm. And ultimately shift left security is about finding and fixing flaws earlier in the development life cycle. So Mm -hmm. you can fix risk with less costs and ultimately release more secure applications in production. And so I think, You know, organizations and security teams are definitely familiar with the idea of, I need to scan my cloud environment. I need to understand where my misconfigurations are. I need to understand where my vulnerabilities are. But then there kind of becomes this next step of, now what do I do? How do I feed that information back to the development and DevOps teams that are responsible for building, deploying, and configuring these applications in a very process-driven way? And I think now the toolkits 
have really become standardized around how organizations are building and deploying their workflows. You know, really their CI, CD tooling, the way they're managing all of this with Git, of course. And so Orca, I think, really has an opportunity to branch out of its core competency around runtime and production security to start integrating into these workflows. And I know we've got a lot of exciting topics that we're going to cover today, whether it's containers and infrastructure as code, and all of those pieces really come together to form the basis of shift left security. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, and, and as security shifts left, it also means there's a change for the development team. Uh, you know, and develop the development experience. The developer experience is something that you know a lot of uh, ops teams care about, and a lot of organizations care about. What does shift left security mean for the developer experience? What changes? Is it good for developers and how? Yeah, and so I think if you're doing shift left security right and you're plugging security checks into your workflows, mm -hmm. I hope we do it right to where developers are impacted as little as possible. Okay. But ultimately it is gonna really be a growth curve for a lot of organizations. But I think it's so important to navigate all of that because developers play such a role in the security of your cloud native applications. You know, they're the ones that are configuring cloud services. If they're using a tool like infrastructure as code templates, or if they're building and deploying the applications themselves, whether it's a container image, whether it's a serverless function, you want to make sure that those are configured properly. And if you have a vulnerable package, library, or operating system, you have a chance to fix that as part of your pipeline, rather than fixing it after you've deployed it and it's potentially been out there for a very long time. And so I think the number one thing is, if shift left security is done right, it has very little impact on the developer experience because it's giving them results in a way that's easy to understand. The process is built around giving them a time frame to fix these issues and redeploy them. And that's where we really have to see security teams coming together with development and DevOps teams to build that process at their organization. It's not going to happen overnight, but the goal should really be a seamless experience for everyone at the organization. Mm, interesting. That's, that's, that's really, I think, yeah, that, that really uh, matters a lot because, I mean, you don't want to slow down the developer workflow in the process of improving security. That's obviously counterintuitive. You touched on a bit about uh, you know, vulnerabilities in the pipeline and the operating system. Could you talk a bit more about the kind of risks uh, that shift left, uh, shift left really helps to, you know, identify and mitigate, you know, could you give us some more examples of the kind of vulnerabilities and issues? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's, there's two real ways to think about it. One is known vulnerabilities. So you might have something, whether it's a, a major vulnerability like log4j, or a high risk vulnerability in a library package or operating system that's really important to your application. Mm -hmm. And the entire idea is if I'm scanning my software components before I go to deploy them, I have a chance to look at that information, understand the details of the vulnerability and potentially have a choice to update those software components to improve the risk posture of the application. And we see a lot of organizations really excelling when they prioritize a specific set of vulnerabilities or a specific set of software components that they're very familiar with. So for mm -hmm. example, if you're an organization using Java, for example, 
really understanding your Java components and saying, you know, these are high risk or critical risks, and we're going to address those. And that's going to be a project that we take on this year or this quarter, for example. The, the other risk that's really important that I don't think people recognize is just non-compliance risks. And mm -hmm. here we're not really talking about open source compliance, but we're talking about how I'm actually configuring my software components to run in the cloud. So for example, if I'm using an infrastructure as code template that spins up a storage bucket, I wanna make sure that that storage bucket uh, doesn't have admin privileges, isn't mm -hmm. internet facing, doesn't have um, potentially read-write access that would expose my corporate data to the outside world. Or mm -hmm. with my container images, for example, I wanna make sure they don't have open ports, they don't run as root. And this is where you have all of the different Center for Internet Security benchmarks or custom policies that organizations may wanna implement to make sure that the application is essentially hardened in the right way and won't expose information. So it's really the vulnerability layer and the compliance or configuration layer that come together to make up the security of a cloud native app. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you could expand a bit on this uh, idea of policies, because you know it seems like that is something again that is very related to infrastructure as code, and you know you don't want to be doing every check manually. Could you explain a bit about just you know how policies work and you know how do they help with just scaling checks? Uh, why, why are policies important? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things to do in kind of illustrating this concept of automation that you just described, where manual checks are incredibly difficult, is mm -hmm. if you go to, go to GitHub and pull up a random infrastructure as code template or a container image, whether it's Docker Hub or some other repo, ask a, a bunch of security engineers, is this secure just by looking at it? And whether it's 10 lines of code or 100 lines of code, it's very difficult to understand all of the configurations just by looking at one of yeah. these code snippets. It's just not going to work. And because these components become essentially the templates for how mm -hmm. your cloud platform is engineered and deployed, how your applications are going to be configured, you need to be using an automated scanning tool to ultimately do the scanning for you. And so here, um, when it comes to infrastructure as code specifically, so here we're talking about technologies like AWS CloudFormation templates, potentially Kubernetes YAMLs or HashiCorp Terraform templates, which are very popular. Developers mm -hmm. essentially use these templates throughout the organization to essentially configure and provision their cloud services. And so if I have a uh, essentially an infrastructure as code template that I haven't scanned, it could have a lot of misconfigurations that are gonna be multiplied when hundreds of developers go to use them in their deployments. And so you wanna make sure that you're scanning those. So you're again, not exposing critical data or resources to the outside world. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I want to also ask about, you know, the scanning process, you know, uh, does scanning change when it's an agent-based solution versus an agentless solution? I know that Orca is agentless. Uh, I was just wondering, you know, could you shed some light on just the differences between these two approaches to scanning? Yeah, so I think when it comes to, you know, agentless and agent-based approaches, there we're really talking about the runtime side of the equation. Okay. So essentially with Orca, we built our agentless approach around scanning 
your block storage that you're using on the public cloud service provider, while other solutions you essentially have to deploy or configure a sidecar, a scanner, um, or some other sort of kernel module within your applications. And the challenge there is that's now a new piece of software that you need to deploy, update, and configure where Orca wants to provide you that telemetry and that approach is called side scanning without having to deploy those agents. When it comes to scanning as part of the deployment workflows, there's lots of different ways that solutions are plugging into those developer toolkits. So it could be um, some sort of IDE plugin. It could be a script as part of the CI workflow or a specific plugin for the CI tool. Um, But ultimately you wanna be able to automate that to make it really easy for the developers and DevOps teams to get those results as part of their native tooling. And so when we released our shift left security capabilities, we unveiled our uh, the Orca command line interface to plug into those solutions, just like a lot of other solutions would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, plugging in the solution. So I think integrations with the CI/CD tools, uh, you know, tools earlier in the pipeline are really key. And uh, you know, uh, how does Orca uh, approach this? You know, what are the how how easy is it to integrate? Uh, Orca with uh, you know the, the various because you know there's so many tools these, these days yeah. you know the supply chain is just so getting complex all uh, you know with every day uh, could you shed a li- little bit of light on you know Orca's approach to just integrations yeah and you you know you definitely hit on this and this is something you know you and I have both been in the cloud native and cloud space for many years can recognize is just that like the toolkits are constantly changing at the organization whether it's because of the new tools the CSPs are releasing or all the new startups that wanna fix problems in this new world and make life easier for the teams at their organization. And ultimately we have a command line. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately we have a command line interface that can be scripted to run on the developer desktop or as part of the build process, just as part of that scripting. And so that allows us to integrate that scanning process as part of you know, any of the modern CI CD tools that you're using. We also are able to scan your different container registries as well. So that gives you coverage across that CI CD workflow. But there are certainly a lot of other organizations building a lot of pre-built plugins um, and trying to find new ways to get developers feedback. And as we continue to roll out and improve these capabilities, we'll be looking to see how Orca can improve that for all of our customers as well. Awesome. And, you know, we're winding down with the last few questions, but uh, yeah, I just want to, you know, get a little bit about, you know, uh, a, de- a few details on just how Orca handles, you know, the reporting part of uh, the, the, the security scan. So does Orca just tell you, you know, hey, uh, there's a vulnerability, we've spotted this vulnerability in this place, you know, you need to fix it. Or can you set up Orca's policies to be so that, you know, that resource gets quarantined? Uh, you know, how, how, does, how does Orca handle, uh, you know, when, when a vulnerability is spotted? Yeah, so I think it's important in order to talk about how we identify vulnerabilities, it's important to understand all the different contextual data sources that we're bringing together. And so we call this the unified data model within the Orca platform. And so here we're looking at the cloud service provider control plane. So what are all, what's all the different data that we can pull in from the CSP APIs? And then we augment all of that with the technology we talked about earlier, which is called side scanning. So there we're able to see the workloads and applications themselves 
and understand if they have any known CVEs. But importantly, there's a lot of other data we're pulling in as well as part of this unified data model. So we're pulling in um, network flow logs and audit logs. We're gonna be looking at your API configurations um, of the web applications you're running themselves. We're pulling in a lot of IAM configuration data as well. And okay. all of this comes together so we understand not only that there's a vulnerability, but there's a lot of context we can bring together to give you really awesome prioritization. And the other thing that's very cool that really separates Orca apart from a lot of other players in the space is we have this very cool dashboard that we call attack path analysis. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking at here is a toxic combination of risks where I might have a misconfigured cloud service that connects to a workload that has a, an embedded secret that then connects to data storage that's exposed to the internet. And what we're gonna do is give you an overall risk score of that attack path and actually show you step-by-step step how you would remediate those risks. So instead of organizations coming in and just getting a long list of vulnerabilities, a long list of misconfigurations, we're able to show you this connected data chain so you can really understand your risks in a whole new way. And so that's where we really feel like we're moving beyond just vulnerability management to this notion of risk context and risk scoring that allows you to spend your time in the most valuable way possible to improve the risk posture of your public cloud environment and applications. Yeah, I saw the dashboard. I think it's quite uh, impressive. I like that, you know, Aka's got a dedicated section just for this, you know, in its product. And it's not like, you know, we've got the same product. We just, you know, uh, you can do shift lift using the same product. But, you know, I, I think it's just really well designed. And, and like you said, you know, um, uh, I, I didn't see that uh, the step-by-step -step workflow. I'm really curious to see that. I would encourage our viewers as well to go and check out this particular feature. It sounds really cool. Uh, but but yeah, I really like this approach of just how shift left, it's not just uh, a name, not just a term, but I think it's really crystallized and really made, you know, uh, given a place in the product itself. I really like that about Docker's approach to shift left security. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, one of the things that really sets us apart that I, I think is really important is there have been a lot of vendors out in the space who have acquired amazing technologies and integrated them together in kind of a suite to give you mm -hmm. all the pieces of the application lifecycle and runtime. And Orca really wants to step back and say, if we were gonna build all of these pieces with intent from the ground up, what would they look like for not only a modern security team, but also a DevOps team and development leadership? And that's where we really have this vision for all of the shift left scans and all of that context feeding what we can also surface at runtime. So I feel like we're just getting started in the space. Yeah, you know, and just getting started, you know, it's still, you know, your, your version one of shift left, the feature itself, what, uh, what's the roadmap like? Could you give us a glimpse of what's coming for shift left? Within yeah, so, Orca? Yeah, definitely. So version one was really about releasing our command line interface and releasing our shift left dashboard to support container images and infrastructure as code templates. Mm -hmm. And over time, we want to be able to support more cloud native architectures. Okay. So things like serverless functions, of course, as those are super popular and widely used by many modern organizations. Mm -hmm. Then we also want to support things like machine images 
as organizations still have a lot of VMs in the cloud, they have a lot of different ways to build and deploy their kind of golden machine image pipelines. And so we want to be able to support those architectures as well. And then I think the other big component is linking up all of the scan context from shift left into mm-hmm. runtime. So eventually being able to look at your application at runtime and click on any application to see kind of the origin story about which developer configured that application, where are they located in the world, what was the scan context when it was built versus what it looks like when it's deployed to really provide that delta between build and runtime. And so I think that's where we're going to be investing over the long run. Yeah, sounds really cool. Uh, Lots more support and even more powerful features coming. I'm going to be keeping track of uh, how this progresses and I'd encourage all of our viewers as well uh, to go and check out Orca and its shift left security solution. Um, So with that, we've come to the end of the questions for Keith. for uh, for this part, so the next part is just to uh, just to get to know Keith a bit. We've got a couple of questions, some some fun questions. Um, so Keith, uh, yeah, just a simple one: What helps you be productive? Do you have any productivity hack you could share with us? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of things that I think of. I mean, number one, I'm still the type of person that comes into work every single day and jots down my top five or top ten list in my notebook here. Um, as a great way to kind of step outside of Slack and all of our modern project management tools that we have to deal with every day. And so if I feel like I can cross off my top five or my top 10, I'm making progress in the ways that are super important for the company. But um, at um, Orca, we are huge fans of Asana. And so being able to look at all of our tasks across our different teams, whether it's marketing or product, and you know, what our launches are, what our big rocks are. That's how I'm kind of setting up my tasks for the team. Um, I think the other thing that I I definitely think is important is setting up time every day to get outside for a walk and step away from all the tech. Uh, Because I definitely found in this kind of remote work, work from home lifestyle we have, it's very easy to just keep plugging away and digging into your next project, but you have to give your eyes a break every so often. And so that's a good reset for me a couple of times a day. Yeah, I like that last one, especially I'm trying to do that myself. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, uh, so, yeah. um, So what's the best way you learn? Uh, So, you know, you can learn new ideas so many ways these days. You know, there's books, there's audio, video, so many things. So what are some of your favorite ways to learn new stuff? Yeah, so I I would say if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, I would have definitely said like going to conferences and spending lots of time watching virtual sessions. Um, And I certainly still do that when I have time, but I've certainly found over the last year, couple of years, that's become increasingly difficult. Um, So I think for me being a visual learner, I definitely love like video demos or getting hands-on with a product itself. Um, And so that's where really the rise of YouTube, the rise of sessions like this, right, where you can be on video with someone on the other side of the world talking about a really cool topic. I really try and absorb those types of sessions and those types of demos where I can kind of breeze through the content at my own pace, focus on kind of the learning areas that I'm really excited about, and then dig into those, you know, more and more in future. Yeah, that's true. That's really cool. And, you know, following up on that, I want to ask your favorite YouTube channel, if you could give us one tech and one non-tech. 
Yeah. So I think when it, um, I'll give you a, a couple, I mean, I'm a huge, um, chess player. And so there's a okay, lot of different cool. chess channels that I watch. And over the last couple of years, it, it's really been the rise of, you know, modern kind of chess in a way, because everyone was at home during the pandemic and everyone was playing online. Um, so I certainly love the uh, Gotham chess channel. Um, he has a huge following. Um, and I also love, there's a channel called Agen Mator who plays current games and famous games and gives a lot of insight into those. So those are two channels that I'm watching um, every couple of days, if not every day. Um, and then when it comes to tech channels, I, I honestly am just looking to see what people are sharing on Twitter, where I have a okay. lot of different people that I follow between security researchers, mm -hmm. um, different companies throughout the CNCF, different open source contributors. And so I kind of rely on following all of them to see kind of what surfaces to the top what are they sharing and commenting about a lot? And when I see that happening, I kind of pause and dig into it every week. Really cool. Wow. Chess, interesting game. Yeah. yeah. It takes a long time to, to finish a game, but yeah, it's really cool that you play chess. Yeah, um, thanks. So yeah, the last thing you Googled, I don't know if you can remember this off the top of your head, but. Oh man, the last thing I Googled. Interesting. It was probably, um, something around uh, a recent vulnerability that like our security okay. team is researching and trying to understand what they were working on. Okay. Um, and so we had a, a conversation around some security research this morning. So that's probably the last thing I officially typed into Google. That's your morning cup of coffee. Nice. Yeah. Catching up on security. <laughs> um, so if not for your career in tech, what would you be? Oh man, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> Let's see. I mean, I, it would probably be something, this is something I reflect on a lot, but something around education. Um, okay. And so outside of tech, um, I had an original career in fundraising for a couple different nonprofits. And so potentially, you know, evaluating that and seeing how can I can take what I've learned in tech and potentially bring that into the educational sphere. Um, because that's something that gets me really excited because when, when I look at my career and what I'm doing every day in tech, I don't feel like it's really a lot of things that I learned in school. There's certainly a lot of soft skill that skills I learned, whether it's public speaking, creative writing, and things like that, that feed into being a product marketer. But I'd love to find more ways to take, you know, the case studies that you're thinking about day in and day out in your job and your career and potentially bringing those into education. That's at least something that's top of mind for me. Yeah. Wow. That's really a noble goal. I think bridging the gap between education and the workplace. That's, that's really awesome. Uh, so with that, we uh, come to the end of all our questions for you, Keith. Uh, to wind up, you know, if you could tell everyone where uh, they could find you online, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, definitely. So you can certainly connect on LinkedIn um, just via my profile, which is Keith Mokris, and then definitely connect on Twitter, um, where it's just, again, twitter.com slash Keith Mokris, all one word. Um, those are kind of the two main ways that I love to connect and stay in touch with people in the tech community and the cloud security community. Yeah, it's nice to have a unique second name so you can always get those uh, the usernames. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so with that, we come to the end of uh, this podcast. Thank you so much, Keith, for sharing your uh, ideas. Thank you for the time. It was lovely just uh, spending this half hour or so with you. Um, and our viewers uh, do keep track of what Orca is doing, especially with the shift left security. And uh, we'll be covering this and more 
uh, on amazic.com. So if you want to know uh, more about Oka, more about shift left, uh, any of these I, uh, infrastructure as code, any of these ideas, uh, you know, head over to amazic.com. We've got articles covering these topics. We've got uh, video interviews like this, and uh, we, we do event coverage as well. So um, stay tuned, go and follow us there at amazic.com. So with that we come to the end of another podcast. Uh, thank you all for joining us and thanks Keith as well. Thank you guys. Have a great day. Bye-bye.